Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. From basically the moment I realized I wanted to do a podcast centered around Chicago venture capital and startups, I knew that Colin Keeley would be a must-have guest. Colin has been synonymous with the Chicago tech scene for the better part of the last decade. He grew up in the Chicagoland area and attended McAllister College for his undergrad. After college, he worked at a startup called Luma, which attempted to build highly personalized movie and TV recommendations from your favorite streaming, cable, and satellite sources. Colin served as a product manager and a marketing manager at Luma before moving on to his first solo entrepreneurial pursuit, Geneva Denim. Colin ran Geneva Denim for a stretch before heading to business school at the University of Chicago. While at Booth, Colin dabbled in venture capital, but decided that he wanted to continue to move forward as an operator and launched Bevy, a sharing economy startup that aimed to allow consumers to rent anything from its platform. In early 2016, Colin launched the Tech in Chicago podcast, the first Chicago-focused early-stage podcast. Colin's show focused on conversations with top founders and investors in the Chicagoland area, and Tech in Chicago ultimately accumulated over 200,000 downloads over the course of its run. Now, Colin has pivoted to the micro-PE model. He's the co-founder and operator of a number of companies, including Avocado, Formulated, and recently acquired Blink Sale. Colin has a fascinating perspective on the Chicago community and the micro-PE landscape. I'm extremely grateful to him for all the support he has given me throughout the process of starting this podcast. I hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And with that said, here's my conversation with Colin Keeley. Colin Keeley, welcome to Chicago Capital. It is truly an honor to have you on the show. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I think in many ways, you're kind of the godfather of Chicago tech podcasting. Would you agree with that title? No, I think it's insulting. I think we're around the same age. <laughs> So take it back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I take it back. We're off to a great start here. This is good. Well, this is an episode I've wanted to do since the very kind of inception of the idea for Chicago Capital. So I'm really excited. I figured we could kind of just dive right in and listeners have a little bit of a context as to your background, but I think you've been synonymous with the Chicago tech scene for half a decade now. So I just love it if you could kind of walk us through your background and then maybe some previous entrepreneurial pursuits that you uh, that you've sort of gone down. But uh, we'd love to hear a little bit more about your background. Yeah, I'll try to go as quickly as possible. So I grew up in the Chicago suburbs here, went to school at McAllister College, majored in econ and math. I was a part-time student my senior year, and I wanted to get into startups. And Seth Levine of the Foundry Group was an alumni, came and talked to my class. You know, I was like, I'd love to get into startups. You know, I'm non-technical. How do I do it? He connected me with a serial entrepreneur named Aaron Weber, who was starting a new startup called Luma, which is a TV and movie recommendation company. So I worked there for three years. We did the TV and movie recommendation app, and it was also like a digital marketing agency, basically. So we did some digital marketing products. So I took some campaigns from $0 to half a million dollars in Google ad spend. So got kind of deep in that paid world. Uh, raised one and a half million over three years, launched a bunch of apps, didn't have enough traction, shut the company down. Then I moved back to Chicago, where I'm from. I launched a company that sold stretchy jeans for guys. So ran a Kickstarter, kind of scratched my own inch there. I got like a theme of my whole journey is just like sticking my fingers in electrical sockets and finding bad businesses. So did that. It was reasonably successful. I just decided I didn't want to be in apparel for the next 10 years. Around that time, I also launched Tech in Chicago, where I interviewed founders and investors. So I did that for a while. You know, through that process, I was like pretty anti-organized education in business school for a while. 
And then more and more of the people I had on went to Booth or Kellogg, both on the founder side and the VC side. I was intrigued to getting into VC and you know, going to a top tier business school is probably the most proven way outside of selling a company for a lot of money. So I did that uh, while at business school, I launched Bevy, which is a, a sharing economy startup. Also flamed out after raising a little bit of money. Through that process, I met Paul Lee, who used to run LightBank and then was doing Builders, uh, which is a $200 million early stage fund. So he hated my company, but liked me well enough. So we kind of stayed in touch. He's looking for help. I uh, joined them. That was like, I don't know how many years ago now, maybe three years ago. So we generally led like Series A deals, no real allegiance or focus to Chicago. And we also would originate companies. So once or twice a year, we'd spin up a company. And about a year ago, I spun out with some of the folks over there and we've just been launching companies, basically have a studio of ourselves. And you know, more recently got into the you know, micro P holding company model, which is kind of adjacent to the studio model. And so just acquired our first business last week, actually, called Blink Sale, like a simple invoicing app. I think through it all, there's so many threads to pull on. I think you are somebody who you're very transparent and you're upfront about the challenges that some of your past kind of startups went through. One of them, Bevy, you had this great blog post about, you know, when you decided you had to shutter it down. But I think it touched on, you know, the sharing economy and the gig economy a little bit. What were some of your sort of main takeaways from that experience from Bevy? When did you realize that business was not going to survive? We weren't seeing the repeat like order rate that we expected, which was always problematic. So it wasn't profitable on the first sale. And then we weren't getting those additional sales. So I would say it, you could build like a nice party rental business, but I was just never interested in that market. And no one to this day has really done it at any kind of venture scale and built a successful business there. And so I wrote that post. I get a bunch of inbound all the time from founders and I try to do everything I can to talk them out of it and not waste a couple of years, unless they have some special twists. So some folks have unique ideas, but most do not. And you podcasted, you had a podcast essentially on the side throughout the entire process, right? For at least the past couple of years, it feels like you've always been involved in podcasting in one form or another. Yeah. So Tech in Chicago was weekly, then it was monthly, then I took some time off and I got back to it. And then more recently, we started Creator Stories. So me and Brent Sanders, my co-founder in a lot of these projects, it's the tech side of the whole thing. We have almost daily calls with each other. And I was like, let's just make the Friday one open. So it's kind of a, a state of the business. And hopefully it's like a, a nice diary effectively going forward and beneficial to other people. When did you first become really excited about the idea of podcasting? Was it something you did a little bit in college or where did you, and this was back in 2015, 2016, when you started Tech in Chicago. So podcasts were definitely back then, not what they are today. What, where did that really fascination for podcasts really start for you? You know, I was always a big consumer of them. And yeah, back then it was much more involved, much more technical to actually launch a podcast. There weren't nice things like Squadcast. So it was all in person with XLR cables and like fancy setups. Oh, no free so ads much... on this show. No free ads. Come on. <laughs> but so when did I start? I was listening to all the big tech podcasts and they always told the same New York and San Francisco startup stories. And I was shocked there wasn't the Chicago ones because there is like Chicago tech media companies. So I knew there would be listeners there. And then personally, I just moved to Chicago and it's just a networking machine. So if you show up with two microphones, you could get in anyone's office in the city. And I did everything in person back then too. So you hang out with someone for an hour and then an hour plus just kind of chit-chatting and getting in touch with them. You and your current partner right now, Brett Sanders on Creator Stories, which is your current podcast, you guys have described yourselves as uh, you know two guys building, buying, and growing wonderful internet companies. You touched on it a little bit, the model you guys employ. 
but could you walk us through the sort of portfolio startups you're currently involved with now? What sort of is the long-term strategic play with what you guys have set up? Yeah, so we're, I'd say we're still figuring it out. So at Builders, it was initially called Ronin, which is a pure startup studio that got rolled into Builders uh, VC, which is Builders Studio. And so we've done, I mean, so many projects, can't even you know count them all. But through that process, I kind of learned like, it's just really hard to go from zero to one. I mean, I knew that before, but you see it at scale, especially amongst people with capital and you know with the skills that have actually done it before. And so through that process, I just kind of became a student of the studio model and looked at how everyone else was doing it. I discovered Andrew Wilkinson out in Victoria, who had Metal Lab and now Tiny Capital, which you know, buys wonderful internet companies, basically stealing the Warren Buffett playbook and just using it on internet companies. And so I wrote up, I listened to every podcast he was ever on. I wrote up a blog post on it. And now I'm just kind of copying him. And I think there's like a, a boringness discount. Like all these startups that grow super fast are super sexy, but you can actually buy product market fit and recurring revenue for a pretty low multiple if it isn't one of these sexy startups in a sexy space. How do you find these startups? How do you source them? You know, is there a marketplace you use? Are there brokers or are you getting sort of a proprietary deal flow through a network? How do you guys go about sourcing these startups? Uh, so I'm very new to it. So still figuring that out. I'd say most of the marketplaces are junk. The one decent one is called MicroAcquire. Uh, there's a lot of brokers out there for sure. And then, you know, over the last year or so, I've just been building up my Twitter presence and, uh, you know, writing more and more content. So, you know, getting more, you know, proprietary proprietary deal flow that way. I'm a huge fan of creator stories. I've listened to almost every episode. So I might pull out some quotes from here and there, and I highly recommend everybody go check it out. It's very similar to if you're a fan of the classic kind of Gimlet startup podcast, which uh, obviously is a titan in the podcasting world. But I really love sort of the behind the scenes look at any business, but especially something in the early stage world. But you've talked about going from essentially being a consumer to a creator on Twitter was the strategy there to build a network and to put yourself out there and um, really be able to utilize that and tug on that to sort of facilitate these transactions in the future? Yeah, I kind of stumbled into it. I asked some question on Twitter that kind of took off. And I was just shocked of like the power of having a bunch of really smart people to answer your questions. So that was like seductive to me. And I just you know wanted to grow a bigger and bigger following that way. So just, yeah, trying to share, kind of learn in public, sharing as we're building in public as well has been pretty beneficial. I took a bit of a break recently, just as we were trying to close this deal. So I have a bunch more tweet storms to write out there. Excited to see them. Um, so one of your companies right now, I really am a fan of, Avocado. Could you walk us through kind of the genesis of Avocado and so the mission of Avocado? Yeah. So this actually originated back kind of twofold. Back when I was an investor, I was looking at the audio space and I decided that monetization was where it lagged the furthest behind. So audio right now monetizes about, or so podcasts right now monetize about a tenth as well as radio, which is kind of absurd because it is effectively internet radio. So attribution and everything should be much better. And I think we just have this kind of fluke of history in the US where people have been trained that you don't have to pay for the best podcasts. And so I wanted to, I decided that the opportunity was to break outside the podcasting bucket. And the way you could get people to pay is where there's a clear return on investment. And with that is, to me, obviously, ed education is where you go. There's a clear ROI there. And so that was the idea for audio courses, which is a fairly original idea in the U.S., but it's not worldwide. So it's a, a billion-dollar market in China. It's called the pay-for-knowledge economy. And that's kind of how we started. 
Yeah, I think the podcasting monetization problem is really interesting. It's something that hasn't has yet to be solved, and I don't really know what the future solution is to get it to the level where radio is. Is that something you think about? What they could potentially do in the podcasting world to kind of get to where radio is? Paid podcasts are definitely a thing. Uh, the people that do it the best generally just clip it, so you have an intro and you listen to the first twenty minutes, and those twenty minutes are really good. I like to listen to the rest, and then it's a hard cut off. So that's probably the most effective way to you know turn your pay free podcast paid that I've seen. But there's a bunch of companies doing that. We're not really in that space. In the space you guys are in, you mentioned educators. What vertical of education is really popular on Avocado as of now? So who kind of utilizes your platform today? Yeah. So it's worth calling out that we are just, uh, we're trying to empower the creator. So we're not a marketplace. It's up to them to upload their content and then distribute it. Like we have some discovery stuff, but it's more on them to you know put out to their email newsletter, their websites, that kind of thing. So we're not too prescriptive on content, but I think any you know text-based community or text-based content could be equal or larger audio-based business. So what's been successful so far, it's a lot of wellness stuff. Uh, history has been historically kind of big. I'm pretty bullish on wellness. We have a lot of I think erotic audio stories have actually been proven to be pretty successful, which is a weirdly big community. Audiobooks and digital books, Kindle books, like a lot of that is kind of that adult content, which is odd to me. But business has been probably the most promising. I, I'm a big consumer of the business courses, online courses, and I think a lot of them would do better in audio where people have more time to actually consume them. Yeah, is the idea to sort of target people almost as a way to passively learn, but to get a better ROI on that learning experience. Is that kind of the whole value prop behind a va- you know behind an avocado versus trying to source a ton of podcasts over the course of time? And it's just a very saturated and inefficient way to, to learn. Is that sort of the core value prop that you're trying to offer people? Yeah. The biggest difference between podcasts and audio courses is just the structure of it. So Audio courses are designed for a clear return on investment. So they take you from A to Z in learning. Like you could get the same knowledge basically in everything and podcasts, but you spend a lot more time doing that. Uh, and the monetization is different. So people sell audio courses to get a ROI there and get you to that A to Z point. Podcasts are built traditionally. Now there's some paid podcasts, but basically it's all advertising based. So Joe Rogan is incentivized to have a three hour podcast so he could fit in an hour of ads or whatever it is. And you guys have talked about being kind of the Shopify for audio courses. What does that entail for you guys? What do you really offer the creator uh, behind some of these courses in a similar manner that you know Shopify offers small businesses that are trying to sort of move to the e-commerce model? Yeah, so Toby of Shopify coined this term. He basically said that Amazon is building an empire and Shopify is arming the rebels. So we are taking a similar approach where Amazon is through uh, Audible is kind of building an empire of audio. Spotify is somewhat similar, where they are taking roughly 70% of the revenue brought in, and we are trying to empower the creators. So if you pay for one of our paid plans, we'll take 0% transaction fees, and you could own all your revenue. Uh, It is a a shift in mindset a little bit, because you have to become slightly more of an audience builder. You can't just throw it up on Amazon and hope for customers. Do you ever have to convince people that maybe have a platform already I guess the selling process for creators, do you ever have to convince them why they should take the audio only approach? Maybe they're on YouTube already or they're trying to go multimedia. Is that ever a sell you have to make? I try not to sell too much. Like I don't want to be convincing people out there. It's just a really hard game to play. So it's more so folks that are, they're thinking about audio courses because it is so much easier to create than video. 
as we're recording a podcast and not like some vlog or something, which would be a lot more work. And so a lot of folks are looking for that way to sell their audio course, and there aren't a lot of good options out there. I mean, the benefit of a vlog would be people could see that we basically look the same age. So further discounting, <laughs> further discounting that Godfather comment, yeah. that would solve that problem. Yeah, no, I think it's a really fascinating space. Do you see many competitors trying to do the same thing? Or is your biggest competitor, you know, Spotify and, and podcasts and YouTube? Or how do you view the competitive landscape? Yeah, the best, I mean, the best competitors are Audible or Spotify or those people kind of trying to own the own the listeners. The most interesting and best executed one. So if you think of us as like teachable or taking the Substack or whatever approach, there is a effectively a masterclass for audio courses called Knowable. And so they are more of a content company. We're like a pure technology company and they are a content farm basically where they partner with influencers and record courses that way. That's the best executed one, I'd say. As COVID-19 has kind of dragged on, have you guys seen any demand from the primary school K through 12 education market to maybe put some supplemental resources on your platform and utilize that for the classroom setting? I got to imagine people are pretty tired of Zoom at this point. I can attest to that. So is that something you guys have seen? Yeah, it's something that's come up quite a bit. Professors, younger kids, younger students, uh, a lot of them want to not have their kids glued to the screen. And what they have found is like, so many people just aren't completing their lectures. Like they try to record it, throw it up on YouTube, and they see everyone's falling off at five minutes. So it's kind of exhausting to watch an hour-long video lecture, but it's easy to go for an hour-long walk and listen to a podcast. So yeah, we're definitely seeing some adoption there. I kind of think that might be almost here to stay as well in the future. Post-COVID, I think even at Booth, there are professors who have found the audio platform and recording videos in advance for their students. I think one of the things COVID has done is kind of reshaped how educators are thinking about delivering content to students and realizing that there's multiple media sources they can use. And kids just have a hard time sort of doing the exact same method for hours at a time. So I don't know. I think that's a really interesting vertical. It could be could be a long-term play for, for Avocado. Yeah, we're still noodling on it, still figuring it out. We'll keep adding features kind of as the demand dictates. So the other company that I know you're pretty involved with is Formulated. And I, I guess my question off the bat is, how do you try to prioritize your time when you have sort of two of these companies that kind of are under your purview? It, it's almost like a, uh, a little bit of a Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk role you've sort of taken on of, of two companies under your wing. But how do you find that process of managing both of these companies? Yeah, try to delegate as much as possible. So we've been hiring like VAs in the Philippines, which helps a little bit. So focus on more of working on the business instead of in the business has been beneficial. But it just, I'm not as structured as like a Dorsey or Elon Musk and obviously not as productive as them either, where they uh, have one day is on this, one day is on that. So just kind of bouncing all across the place. And personally, I use Rome to track like my to-do list and then Trello as a company we use. Uh, so a bunch of different Trello boards. And backing up for a second, could you describe to listeners what Formulated is and sort of the, the goal behind that company? Yeah. So Formulated is an automation agency. So we kind of stumbled into it. We thought the, R the RPA space, robotic process automation is booming. And we wanted to build like the, the tools basically for it. So we built a number of tools and then we realized like it would just be beneficial to have more and more projects. So we have, um, like if you're a big company, you hire McKinsey, pay millions of dollars and you could build out like an automation arm or you hire your own folks. But that isn't really available to the small and medium sized businesses. And that's where we're playing. And I think the reality today is like probably half of knowledge work is automatable. 
And a lot of these kind of old school companies, you know, haven't quite realized that yet. So we'll step in and educate them. And then as well, we'll be their outsource automation arm. So is it utilizing any artificial intelligence or is it a different sort of technology altogether? Uh, yeah. So there's some of that for sure involved. RPA traditionally is like controlling your mouse and keyboard. So it's a lot of kind of boring manual tasks that humans are doing that they really shouldn't be doing because they're so air prone. So with these legacy companies, it's a lot of connecting like two old systems. Like they have a new CRM and an old CRM that can't talk to each other. And often you could use like Zapier for the more simple integrations, but the more complicated ones, you just, you throw, you're throwing humans at it. And so humans are doing this kind of mindless robotic work that they really shouldn't be doing. They should be focusing on more, you know, value add activities. What responsibilities within the company? I mean, is it, you mentioned the CRM, that sounds a little bit like the sales process, but is there any kind of accounting, a focus, bookkeeping, any of those mundane, sorry, not mundane tasks. I don't want to offend any bookkeepers or uh, accountants, but uh, what kind of uh, tasks do you guys really look to help out with? Yeah, there's a lot of finance tasks for sure. There's a lot of reconciling books, you know, dealing with invoices, looking at an email that's coming in, grabbing some number and importing it into you know QuickBooks or something like that. That's popular. Anytime you're working with like, healthcare or government where there's a bunch of like legacy code that doesn't connect to anything like you would like it to we, we're stepping in and helping those, out those guys as well one thing that's interesting to me is looking at these two companies they seem pretty different but i think the common undertone and, and theme that i really feel emerges is you seem to be really focused on solving inefficiencies across the workplace and sort of the self-education consumer space. Is that how you kind of think about these two or where they intersect? And where did this kind of drive to solve inefficiencies come from for you? I feel like that's sort of really what you're involved with today. Yeah, I'm not sure. I appreciate that thought. That's not, we weren't as like top-down prescriptive. I think we initially came up with these two because we liked the audio space. We knew there were a lot of opportunities there. And then RPA was similar. It was just growing so quickly. We knew there's a lot of opportunities. And we just kind of jumped right in and you know tried to figure it out as we went. If anything, like I've kind of been obsessed with this idea of people, like humans being under leveraged. And so I actually think everyone should have, I don't know, the average American makes $25 an hour. And maybe the average person in the city makes like $50 an hour. You can hire people in the Philippines and pay them well for where they live, like, like $3 an hour. And so we are uh, like, we're leveraging things with content. So audio courses can scale infinitely. And then with RPA, little robots, they basically scale infinitely. Or you can do that with other humans. Um, so I was always intrigued by that. Never pursued that idea. But I do think everyone should have like a VA to help them out. So I can focus on more important things. Yeah, no, I think there's a ton of, there's one company called Vava Virtual Assistants, which is a really popular one I know. And I think it's kind of a concept coined by Tim Ferriss in the four hour work week. Did you, you ever read that book? I did. Yeah. I've read all those books. I think, yeah, I think there's some similar threads there as well. And you're co-founder, kind of your business partner in all this. How did you guys meet? How, where exactly did you, was it at Builders VC? Where did you guys exactly get uh, tied up? Yeah. So Brent started a studio quite a while ago. I think initially in New York, came out to Chicago, grew the studio. It was acquired by Builders and that became Builders Studio. And that was like our value add component basically. And so we, you know, we're always in the same office, just like noodling on ideas, talking to them every morning. I'm not sure either of us ever thought of starting a business together, but we both, you know, had a passion for starting things. We have very complementary skill sets. That's great. I guess for you, looking out towards your career, is staying in a operator first role something that really interests you? Is staying in a creator role like you've always been sort of interesting to you? Do you want to maybe move into investing ultimately one day? How are you kind of thinking about your long term? You know, I think I think this micro private equity world has a lot of promise. 
And so I think we're just going to keep scaling that up, keep acquiring more businesses. And deciding where to play in that is kind of a question. I think there's an opportunity in like the, so most private equity firms would like kind of jump in and call it like 50K ARR or 50K earnings. And I think there's an opportunity around like the 100 to 200K ARR where like a single developer has built something that has real product market fit, hundreds of customers, but they don't really have that skill set to take it to the next level. They don't have the skill set to put like the processes in place or any real best you know practices for sales and marketing. So I think we'll probably play in that space, grow it two to three times, hire a, a CEO that is much better than us, and then that kind of run. So I would love to shift or pivot to that more holding company model. It reminds me a lot of, Companies like Thrasio and Heyday that are looking at e-commerce marketplaces and trying to find those brands that have yet to really break out. And they almost come in and act as Amazon accelerators, effectively. I know it's very different industries and type of companies you guys look for, but I think you got to do it. It's almost a similar model to micro PE. Is that is that kind of on the right track? Yeah, they definitely have similarities. Thrasio is FBA, fulfilled by Amazon businesses, and they've just been rolling them up, which each one is like pretty risky, but at scale, it's it kind of a pure, like a, it's almost like an SEO play. Like they just have so much SEO on Amazon that some go up and down, but, and then it's a bit of a question of like, how integrated do you want the individual businesses to be? Like synergy is kind of a joke word, but in business school, but it is a real thing. Like, do you want them to be synergized at all? Or do you want them to be all independent? And so I, I think we're leaning more towards independence and taking on like different wonderful internet companies and just sharing best practices amongst them. Do you feel like, and I know you're super involved with becoming more so with the Booth community post-graduation. And I know, but once upon a time, you had sort of a, I guess you'd call it a disdain for a higher, higher level or a business school education. But now looking back on it, would you say that, uh, you know, it was a really rewarding experience for you and you still draw upon a lot of the things you learned? Yeah. So most people would make jokes, especially HBS folks, that they didn't actually learn anything. And it's just socializing, partying. I definitely did plenty of that. But I feel like I learned quite a bit and the connections have been really valuable and could I have done it with Twitter or a podcast? I mean, for sure. And maybe Twitter has been more valuable than business school, but I'm happy where I ended up and I couldn't say I'd be here for sure if I didn't go. So no, I am pro booth and pro <laughs> business school as long as you could get into a top one. Pivoting to Chicago a little bit more, curious just about the, the beginning, the early days of tech in Chicago. What did those first 10, 15, 20 podcasts look like? How did you go about booking guests? And I have to imagine you were probably the only podcast in Chicago focusing on Chicago's early stage tech. So you didn't really have any competitors back then. But what was that early kind of process for you, like getting it off the ground? Yeah, it is worth thinking like five years ago, podcasts were pretty novel. So being asked to be on a podcast was something pretty special and people were like excited to do so. So my first ones were just looking at like Chicago Inno or Built in Chicago and seeing who got funding and hitting them up and saying, hey, congrats, would you like to come on the Tech in Chicago podcast, which didn't even exist at the time. But yeah, cold emails were very successful. I think everyone said yes for quite a while on that. And then after you get started, it's just referrals. You ask your guests, who, what other three people should I have on? Will you intro me? It's kind of a really cool treasure trove to look back at some of the very successful founders and companies that you were able to interview before they really hit it big. I think you had Cameo back in 2019, and they were successful at that point, but it was before COVID-19 and their unicorn status. I know you had Tavala on uh, a few years ago as well. Are there any sort of memorable interviews that, that you you did or ones that really stick out in your mind as favorites? Uh, so, so yeah, I had some really big ones. Chris Gladwin sold his company for you know over a billion dollars. 
the, the coolest one to me was actually Jeff Kahn of Rise Science. So I'm really into sleep, I'm very dedicated about getting eight hours every night. And they do sleep tracking and coaching for professional athletes. Uh, so think like NFL, NBA teams. And I just thought that was a really fun one. It was in the Cards Against Humanity office as well, which pre-COVID was pretty awesome. They have like train cars in there. A bunch of startups were working out of there. So was, that was a fun one. Anybody you'd like to re-interview, if you got them really earlier in their career, really early in the life cycle, and maybe they've gotten a bit bigger, but anybody that comes to mind who you'd love to kind of check in with and see where are they now? You know, one that kind of got away from me that I never did was Brian Johnson of Braintree and now Colonel, which is like a Neuralink competitor. He's in LA now, but I'm going to be a part of the podcast with him. We're launching a uh, Polsky booth podcast because it's the 25th anniversary. So I'll be seeing him, I guess, in a few weeks here at least. That's great. What's that podcast going to focus on, the Polsky booth one? So kind of the theme is it takes a village. So I am pairing like an investor or someone that was really close with the founder and was along for like the whole journey with the founder to tell like how I built this style stories. So I'm the voice of it at the start, but I am more of like the producer or manager of the whole thing once it gets going. That's awesome. And we will definitely include that in the show notes. I think that's going to be really exciting. Looking out at kind of the broader startup community in Chicago today, what's sort of your assessment of it today? How has it developed since you started tech in Chicago almost five, six years ago? Yeah, it's a flywheel. So we need bigger exits. We need more people that have good outcomes that come back and become angel investors. So it's progressing. I think COVID set us back a little bit. It felt like a lot of our talent like fled to Miami or Austin or just kind of got out of here. Chicago was not the best place to be living during COVID. Most of the city shut down. So I feel like we took a few steps back, but Chicago has a lot going for it. It's a great city to live in. Has not always been like the most you know, friendly towards tech, I would say. It seems like every time we want to fix something, we just hire a bunch of consultants. I'd love if all that money just went to like early stage founders and that friends and family round. We're definitely missing those angels here. And I heard an interesting theory recently. So it's prestigious, of course, to be like an angel investor in San Francisco. It's not really like there's no social pressure to do that or social benefit to do that in Chicago. But I had another. Uh, I heard another theory recently that you don't really need that big angel investment or like a funding exit win or startup exit win to buy a house in Chicago. Like you could be comfortable, you know, having just a normal job. So there isn't that pressure to like be risky with your capital, so you actually can afford, you know, to raise a family here or something like that. Yeah, that's one thing in my experience, short experience thus far with this podcast is the taxes are not very conducive to any business, but especially early stage companies. But the cost of living does mitigate that a little bit. And the winters are terrible and not at all a great re recruiting tool. But I'm sort of curious, one thing that I've tried to peel apart, I think that there's, and I'd love to hear your take on this, but there seems to be just a greater emphasis here on B2B SaaS, you know, B2B startups. There's a high industry focus here in Chicago. There's such a high concentration of enterprises, Fortune 500 companies, but there doesn't seem to be as much enthusiasm for consumer tech companies. Is that something you experienced both both as a founder of Bevy and through your podcasting journey, is that something you would agree with? Uh, so on the investor side, investors are definitely far too risk adverse here. They have more of like a private equity mindset where it's like, how do we protect our downside? Not like, what what does this look like if it actually you know takes off and is a $100 billion company? So that kind of imagination, I guess, is missing to some extent where people just like their B2B SaaS. They know it's a good business. They're not taking any business model risk. But you're not going to have those like wildly outsized funds if you're not doing that. And then whether Chicago has those consumer successes, I think it's a bit of a misnomer that we don't. So if you think of many of the biggest successes here, 
Groupon, Grubhub, Cameo recently, Tavala recently. Those are all consumer-facing companies. They all had a business model that was clearly going to make money. So it's not like a pure social network or something, but we do have some consumer talent and it's getting better, I'd say. Maybe it lies more in the unit economics that investors need to see here. Something like a Snapchat or an Instagram might have a hard time getting, uh, getting founded in Chicago, but maybe something that's based on transactions and the core underlying unit economics, and it's an easy sort of explanation to VCs, that's probably maybe explains some of the misconceptions. Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, it would be hard to do Clubhouse at a billion dollar valuation in Chicago. I'm not sure anyone was betting on that. But I'm super bullish on just remote generally and maybe not Chicago specifically. Like maybe you live here, but your company is everywhere. So I think you know, the best companies could certainly be founded here and your team is in all likelihood just going to be worldwide. You've talked about in the past, I think you're a big fan of walks, right? And I was just curious, favorite areas to walk in the city? Yeah. So this was funny recently. The Wall Street Journal reached out to me and I was like, oh, great for avocado for formulated. No, I saw your tweet about you like going for walks during COVID. It's like a <laughs> fake commute. So I talked to them about that. But favorite walks. I, so I live in Lincoln Park. So my standard walk is just like to the park, Oz Park over here and doing loops and like taking phone calls. We have pretty tree lined streets, but my favorite is making it over to the water which is probably like a 10 minute walk. So I don't, I don't make it over there every day. And then North North Avenue Beach and up from there. And did you play basketball once upon a time? Do I have that information correctly? Did you play in college? Yeah, I played at McAllister College. I, I used to play two to three times a week pre-COVID. I haven't played in like a year at this point. I even touched the ball. But I got an invite to like a basketball tournament in a few months. So it's like, oh, COVID, you know, the world is healing. Basketball is coming back. Both my parents are vaccinated. So that was exciting. Yeah, I saw you tweeted about Joy the Game. Yeah. So I, did you I play? Guess it, I did. Well, so I made it about halfway through high school. And then me and the head coach have had a difference in philosophy. Let's just call it that. <laughs> he, I thought I was good enough to play and, and he disagreed. So I no longer played. <laughs> but um, yeah, I played, played all my life, essentially. And I played at Joy the Game. And I hadn't seen that photo in a long time. And it brought back so many memories. It brought back you know, getting posterized at the age of 12, brought back some good Saturday afternoons. Did you spend a lot of time there? Uh, yeah, we definitely had tournaments growing up there in high school. And then like during college and after college, there was a really good league with all the college guys that were back. This was a very competitive for quite a while. And then I moved away. I didn't realize, I think, yeah, it just got knocked down. It doesn't exist anymore, which is, was shocking. That's depressing. That is very depressing. Um, well, this has been great, Colin. I'd love to just finish on a few. I spent four years in New York and then I kind of moved back to Chicago. And right when I moved back, COVID sort of shut down everything. So I'm, I'm trying to get a little bit more acclimated to the food scene here in Chicago. So any great restaurants you want to give a shout out to in Chicago? Any any favorite Chicago style food that 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 you've grown to love? Wiener Circle is certainly experience when, when COVID is over. I highly recommend checking that out at 2 a.m. sometime. I live by Athenian Room, so I go there quite a bit. It's like a Greek food. Big Star is probably my favorite, realistically, in Wicker Park. Like a patio getting margaritas and tacos is my go-to. Wiener Circle, I've been there once or twice. It always just makes me feel bad about myself. I, I don't think I can I don't think I can handle the chirps. Yeah, yeah. I'm not into getting berated either. It's just a, a fun place to take folks. And I have to ask, do you have any podcast recommendations, audio course recommendations on avocado, not on avocado? Anything that you're listening to nowadays that that you get a lot out of? Uh, you know, my favorite one recently is My First Million. Uh so that is Sam Parr and Shane, Sean Puri. And those guys are just like jamming on ideas. And they have a new five new ideas every week. And a lot of them are not very good. And you want to be like, no, it's bad for these reasons. But every once in a while, it's gems. And I think that's just a fun mindset of jamming through ideas. 
And then there's another recent one that's super small called Let's Buy a Business, just on like the micro private equity space. There aren't really any startups on there uh, on that topic outside of like ours as well, Creator Stories. So that that has been a fun one recently, just going through their backlog. I had not heard of My First Million yet, so I'm going to add that to the list. That's a, That sounds like a good one. All right, Colin, I really appreciate you coming on. This has been amazing. Love catching up on all things Chicago. If people want to find you, if people want to follow Avocado, follow your guys' stories, where, where should they go? Yeah, best place to find me is Colin Keeley on Twitter and then colinkeeley.com if you want to read any of my stuff. You can find me there and you know, feel free to reach out. My DMs are open. Awesome. Colin, thanks so much for joining Chicago Capital. Can't wait to have you back. Thanks for having me. Take care. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.